Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Karen Richards, and she's speaking to us from the UK. Um, and uh, Karen has what I think is a very interesting story for those who like stories. Um, and I'll let her tell it rather than me try to summarize it. But uh, her initial awakening was really quite unexpected, I would say, and, and took place under different circumstances than most people tend to report. So maybe we'll, we'll start right in with that and then take it from there. Sure. Um, I wasn't actually looking for anything called self-realization or enlightenment um, or awakening. And I was, at that particular time in my life, going through a lot of stress. I was in a job um, where I was a critical care sister in the UK. Sister means like a nurse? Yeah, like a, a senior nurse. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a pretty stressful job. I was carrying a cardiac arrest fleet, teaching, training, and all the aspects that go with that, working full time. And uh, understaffed as well. So that was one kind of area of my life that was particularly demanding. Um, I was running a home and doing all the normal things there, cooking, cleaning, mowing the lawn, uh, <laughs> all the normal things we do. Um, I was also in a relationship at the time which was not particularly supportive, to put it uh, an understatement. And it was just all these things were coming at the same time. Um, there were personal issues to do with family going on as well. Um, there was also an incident with my car which needed to be dealt with. And so there was all these different aspects of life that were seemingly coming together at one particular time and um, my health started to suffer. And I had several periods where I was off work, unwell, um, and things just seemed to get worse and worse and I went back to work and things were really not, not great. Um, the management structure and the job that I was doing weren't supporting what the help that I was requiring at that and, time. And you're pretty young, so you must have been very young then, like early 20s or something, right? I mean, <laughs> Oh, bless you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually 37 now, so I was 33 okay. when all this was happening, so early 30s. I know how to compliment a lady. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you? <laughs> yeah, so it was pretty tough, and... As I say, my health was just declining and I started getting colds and being sick and having time off work. And towards the end of the year, because this was kind of go building up, I guess, over a couple of years, but towards the end of the second year, um, I just basically ended up with a cold, a really bad flu episode, and I didn't recover. And I was diagnosed around that time with having an undracted thyroid and mm. chronic fatigue because mm. I didn't respond to treatment for my thyroid condition. Mm -hmm. And so it was like there was a complete, almost complete mental and physical shutdown um, brought me to a, a bit of a full stop. And around that time, I was talking with a friend of mine who said that... Um, it didn't make sense what I was saying and he had something that 
he wanted me to listen to. Um, it didn't make sense in the sense that I was, um, you know, young, bright, outgoing, seemingly having all these things going for me, and then my life was a complete disaster in every way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so he said, I've got this material that I would like you to listen to, this tape, and I had no idea what it was, and I went to spend the day with him talking about stuff and going through things, and he'd actually forgotten about this information that he'd mentioned so I reminded him about it so we we sat down and he put on this this recording we were just sat in a house in um in Bridge North in Shropshire and um yeah he just put it on and we were sat drinking a cup of tea and it was a guy that I now know to be John Wheeler the non-dual teacher from the United States mm -hmm. And basically within the first 10 minutes, I just looked to my friend and he say, and said, he's saying we are awareness. Um, and he said, yes. And at that moment, that seemed to, that pointer seemed to create an opportunity for what the word was pointing to, to be recognized experientially. Mm -hmm. There was... A recognition of myself as the emptiness in which everything is appearing and dissolving and that they're not to and it it was a timeless moment of recognition that seemed to then fundamentally affect um, how life was seen and experienced from that moment on even though nothing had changed and you um, had no background of interest in this kind of thing or meditation practice or any such thing um not really mm -hmm. uh, there was always if i think about it an active inquiry into what life is all about mm. from a very very young age i remember around the age of seven or eight asking my mum a question where was I before I was here? Hmm. And I remember her looking at me all confused and saying, well, nowhere. And I remember it making absolute no sense whatsoever at that time. And I was interested in life after death, so I was reading a lot of books and I'd had a lot of kind of psychic and mysterious experiences, hmm. um, which had kind of prompted that as an active investigation I guess and around the age I think I must have been around 15, 14 or 15 I remember sitting in my bedroom in complete silence um, asking the question, well where am I? What am I? Am I in my heart? Am I in my head? And I was unable to locate myself and after the awakening experience happened, that experience at the age of 14 or 15 or whenever it was seemed to make perfect sense. But in my um, later teens, I guess, I was continuing to read books like um, The Road Less Traveled, mm. M. Scott Peck's uh, spiritual psychology book, and Khalil Gibran's poetry, um, so there was kind of a loose um, interest, but not in the wider aspects of Advaita or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, well, it sounds like there was definitely a proclivity toward 
this kind of thing then. It's not like you were just knocking back beers every night and then all of a sudden, bingo. <laughs> there was some sort of, you know, attraction. To, you know, the, the, the Gita has this verse where it says, Arjuna asks Krishna, well, what happens to a person if he's on the path to enlightenment and he dies, you know? And Krishna said, well, in his next lifetime, he just picks up where he left off. And, of course, a lot of traditions say that. And some people don't believe in reincarnation and this and that. But yeah, I tend to feel like... And I see it a trend, you know, where people who have awakenings um, very often show sort of symptoms of of uh, um, an affinity with this in earlier in life, and it, it makes sense to me. I don't I have no way of knowing whether it's true that we're the span of evolution is really quite vast, and and you know we may very well have have done our spiritual homework, you know. And, in previous lives or something, and then there's a, a a kind of a readiness for an awakening which can be triggered by the slightest thing. Um, so it's not like it just happened for no reason whatsoever. You know, you may have done all sorts of practice or bid with teachers, and and some people actually have, like Adyashanti, for instance, whom I interviewed, you know, f- about a month ago, uh, when he had his, I guess it was his second major awakening. He he was walking across the living room and he and all these images flashed of previous lives that he had lived, which he said are in some sense right now in the present. But he could sort of see into each one and and realize that, you know, he had uh, built up a a tendency toward uh, interest in in spirituality and awakening, which had finally come to fruition. Hmm. You know, it's it's all very theoretical and hypothetical and whatnot to talk that way, but I just thought I'd throw it out there. No, no, it's uh, interesting, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I didn't mean to interrupt your story, but we have plenty of time, so I just wanted to sure. th- throw that in. Sure, Where did I get to? You'll have to probably keep prompting me. <laughs> well, you were talking about, you know, you how much stress you had been under, and then you sat down and listened to John Wheeler and had this mm. awakening, and everything shifted. And that's pretty much where yeah. you, you got off. Yeah. So it was like waking up in hell, what I perceived to be hell in terms of my own personal experience. I mean, of course, there are a lot more hellish things that go on in the world than what I was going through. But um, well, you already yeah. were experiencing the hell aspect, you know, with all your 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 <laughs> pressures and your and your health situation. But now you've woken up in hell. You're saying, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was kind of it. It's like, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and because there was such um, a state of fin- physical and uh, mental exhaustion, there was no op- option other than to really surrender to what had been realized Mm. i spent practically two years in bed um after this awakening yeah wow huh yeah it was time where i was very very physically uh incapacitated and there's still remnants of that evident today um a lot of um lack of stamina and different things but obviously there's been vast improvement um, did, did you have to quit your job and all i lost my job yeah because you were you're helpless so yeah. yeah yeah hmm uh, so. this is tangential and we won't discuss it now but you might want also check into adrenal problems um 
because sometimes mis- thyroid problems are not the whole story. But anyway, let's not get into that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I so, did bring that up actually with my consultant, but oh, um, good. so it's yeah. You've been checking, good. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting thing too, and and it also uh, I, I don't want to keep referring to Adyashanti, but it reminds me of his situation where he he had this awakening, and then it's almost as if nature said, "Okay, kid, we're gonna." reset your buttons here so here get nice and sick and stay in bed for six months <laughs> <laughs> and so he, he went into this uh, you know in fact the same thing happened to St. Francis of Assisi you know he came back from the the crusades or whatever it was and he had this sort of spiritual experience actually he, he got totally sick almost died and then woke up out of that with a spiritual uh, realization it, it's almost like if we really have to shift gears in a big way yeah. Nature knocks us flat. Right. And it did feel a little bit like that, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just totally um, resetting everything because so much seems to have changed in a personal sense, if we can call it that, even though it isn't personal. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was just a complete realigning, as I see it, with life as it truly is, because everything seemed to be so out of alignment. Mm-hmm. Of course, we can never ultimately be out of alignment because everything is it. But in terms of how it was being experienced, it was just a dysfunction at every possible angle. Yeah. And so when all the lenses fell away, all the certain fundamental lenses fell away, then there was just this seeing of everything as it truly is, but the outer manifestation of life had to shift. And in order for that to happen, something pretty fundamental had to happen, I guess, to enable that. I think that's happening to the world right now, actually. You know, we're seeing all kinds of institutions crumbling and things that used to work not working anymore and stuff. And, you know, I, yeah. I, I suspect that that's because all, a lot of change has to take place for the shift in consciousness that's taking place to Absolutely. Re- really happen. Um, so what happened? How long you say so you, you were like flat on your back more or less for a couple of months, you say? I was kind of going through this boom and bust. I was still pretty determined to try and do things. And mm-hmm. so um, a lot of time I was physically unable to, but then there was still shopping and cooking and those kind of things and trying to have some sort of um, social life on some level. But mm-hmm. it was obviously greatly reduced to what yeah. it was. So often people only used to see me when I, I got a bit of energy to be able to engage for a couple of hours. Um, but then it was back to being a hermit in the house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's actually a book by that name, A Hermit in the House. I, oh, is there? <laughs> yeah, it's a book about um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi staying with some people when he first started his teaching mission, and then he was living in their house, and so they they wrote this beautiful little book called A Hermit in the House. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so... Did you eventually then, obviously you're much more active now, you're traveling to all over the world and doing things, so obviously you came out of that phase, so kind of elaborate. Um, well, I guess things just started to snowball by themselves, and there is still a lot of lack of stamina, so it's not like I'm kind of running here, there, and everywhere, that's mm-hmm. not really what's happening. 
but things just seemed to start to take shape. I mean, I was just using Facebook actually as a way of sharing insights mm-hmm. um, through status updates. And from that place, all manner of things started to open up. Mm. Um, an opportunity started to come in um, very organically um, just through sharing um, that from that platform. Um, and I'm just very, very open and receptive to, to life and whatever comes and saying yes to it now. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, that wasn't the case. There was almost, um, you know, a sense of um, really just withdrawing mm-hmm. um, and not saying yes, really just almost marinating, I guess, <laughs> in what's... <laughs> what's always here um just taking a complete step back so i i recognize that perhaps some aspects of that were being were hindering um embracing life in its fullness yeah well um, you know as ecclesiastes says there's a time to marinate and a time to say yes or something along the, i'm paraphrasing very roughly but uh, <laughs> you know i think it's appropriate that you took that you had that withdrawal phase you needed you needed that and then not then it's later appropriate to you know get more engaged <clears throat> yeah so that's really how everything started to unfold from from starting to say yes and just responding to to what comes up really very naturally there's this moving from seeking satisfaction and happiness in the world mm-hmm. to just allowing everything to be and responding from a conscious place to what is arising mm. in an experiential sense. Yeah. So that started to snowball more and more. Is there a sense that, you know, you're saying yes to things because there's a sort of a wisdom inherent in the in the whatever is orchestrating the flow of events in life and and you can trust that to be in your best interest, you know, so if you when, when you just flow and say yes and so on, then things tend to work out in unexpected ways. Yeah, and flow and say no too. Yeah, if if necessary. Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, just really being in tune with what is going on, um, and really listening to to what is mm-hmm. and what feels right. It's like on a feeling intuitive level. Yeah. Somehow. It's a good point because I I think sometimes people f- feel that just flowing with with things as they unfold t- implies throwing your discrimination out the window um but it doesn't necessarily because that's no. that that's also a useful faculty <laughs> yeah it's almost like your ability to know this um where to go becomes more finely tuned mm-hmm. so it isn't just saying yes to everything it's really saying yes and no appropriately right so you're kind of hinting at what I'm going to ask next in a way, which is, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the changes in the external circumstances of your life, not being able to work and being sick for a while and then getting more active again. But how does the uh, how has the subjective or inner experience corresponded with that? In, in what way has that matured or evolved or clarified or whatever since that initial awakening? Oh, vastly. Let's talk about that. 
it's like the way I see awakening is like a beginningless beginning of true experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so we're in the process paradoxically, even though we recognize ourselves to be in that moment of awakening, that which is awake, we are at the same time awakening to that which is already awake simultaneously. And so there's always a deeper and deeper opportunity to see through what is not mm -hmm. in each and every moment. And what I, what's seen here is that there can be very, very subtle tendencies operating. And it's, it's almost so familiar. It's like putting on a pair of glasses that you've always seen through and everything looks fine. But it's only when you take the glasses off, it only seems to be when something falls away. Mm. that you really notice that it was even there. Interesting. Because it's just so familiar, it seems completely natural and normal. It's so familiar, it's unnoticed. Yeah, Adyashanti was saying the same thing in his interview, because I asked him a similar question. He kept saying, well, it's like things keep falling away. Mm. And, and I, didn't, I don't, didn't even realize they were there until they were gone. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Right, huh. right. And, and I, so, I'm, I, go, go I ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, please. I was just going to say, I don't actually see this as ever stopping. It hasn't so far. Right, yeah. Um, so that's an interesting point because in, in some non-dual or spiritual circles, there's, you know, progress is a dirty word. <laughs> um, you know, there's and I, and a number of people that I speak with, I, I say, well, you know, do you see any sort of, improvement or whatever over time and and they say no I can't possibly see how anything could change or be any different than this but that doesn't jive with my experience and it doesn't jive apparently with yours or mm -hmm. without and, and in a way it's true they're right you know there's mm. a, there's a dimension which isn't going to improve or change or anything but totally. that's that's not the entirety of it right right there's this dichotomy almost yeah yeah you know it's like a halfway house, I see it as a halfway house. Emptiness is a perspective mm -hmm. in that which knows emptiness. And so in realizing with a nothing in which everything is arising and dissolving, to stay in nothing is really a pers only a perspective. It's like a halfway house hmm. in the full journey of embracing what's always here it's like an imaginary journey back to the point you never left <laughs> there has to be this breaking of apparent identification and in order to do that the emptiness that you truly are needs to be recognized but then if it's true recognition it's recognized in its fullness mm. in an experiential sense and so a lot of what happens in terms of the falling away is like all of those, those things that seem to happen in the early story, in the early part of the experience, get seen through with increasing clarity. The early part of the experience of life or the early part of experience of awakening? Oh, the early part of experience of the human story of the your, individual. So your first 33 years or whatever, in other words. Yeah. 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 Particularly the first maybe 10 and then how that those patterns get repeated later mm -hmm. on okay so when you say things are falling away just to you know dwell on this for a minute you're you're talking about ingrained patterns or in impressions or tendencies or habits or whatever that you know you grew up with that 
now are are dropping off one by one. Right. We could yeah. we could describe it like that. Yeah. Like skins of an onion. Yeah. But ultimately, everything's perfect. Everything is as it is. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, what is needs no purification because it's already pure. Right. And yet, in an experiential sense, there seems to be this refinement to what is already pure. Mm-hmm. Well, I, one analogy that might help with it is, you know, the sun is shining and it's always been shining. But, you know, if there are a lot of clouds, then we don't see the sun. And so, you know, maybe there's a peep in the clouds, uh, a break, and we see the sun shining. Uh, and so, oh, the sun is starting to shine. Of course, it's not starting to shine. It's always been shining. But then there could be like all kinds of cl- degrees of clearing away with cl- of clouds. And of course, it's just an analogy and it's rough. But um, I think people tap into this realization that, oh, I've always been this awareness or this emptiness or this fullness or whatever you want to call it. But the question is, is it really a living reality, you know? Right. Uh, and how much uh, and how how full a living reality could it become? Right. You know. Um, so th- that's where the real. Uh, yeah, I think there can be a tendency, a danger almost, to live this recognition from a memory, mm. rather than meeting it fresh, a living realization, as you say, in each and every moment. Yeah. To live it as a memory or to even live it as an understanding, perhaps based upon a, a previous glimpse which gave you that understanding. And, and you know, yeah, good point. Mm. Yeah. And to me this is not, uh, to me this is a, a kind of a, a wonderful aspect of the whole thing, a fascinating aspect, which is that it's exciting really because, you know, the, the question arises, well, how much can be cleared away? How, how fully can this be lived? You know, to and that, and as you said earlier, there seems to be no end to it. So life becomes this wonderful sort of adventure of you know discovery and and con- totally, it's like <laughs> a magical mystery tour of yeah. pure experiencing. You don't know what's going to happen next, or it's amazing. Yeah, totally amazing. Uh huh. Just responding to things as they present themselves, just yeah. because. Just because what? Just because it's so. Just because it is. Yeah. And it's it's not only an amazing and adventure and all that in terms of the things that happen as they present themselves, but also, wouldn't you say, um, I'd like to frame this more in terms of questions than me making statements, but <laughs> also in, in terms of uh, your inner perspective on those things or events or whatever and how that grows yeah it's amazing you know we can find ourselves responding in a totally different way um in circumstances where we would have behaved in a completely different way Mm -hmm. you know every conditioned aspect can be trying to wheel its way in to try and manipulate experiencing and try and control things and that can be seen through and so it's almost like conscious responding takes over even though the conditioned aspect may be trying to muscle its way in through the door. Mm. And so there's a knowing from the heart right action 
even if it seems to go completely against what 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 would have been done before mm, nice point yeah and uh, and there can be i guess a little tug of war between the two where the uh, you were sort of just saying this where the condition aspect is saying let's do it my way yeah <laughs> and the knowing from the heart is saying uh-uh, i'm gonna do it this way and ultimately there's no choice right huh you um you seem very articulate with all this. I mean, since your awakening, did have you read a lot of books in order to acquire the terminology or, you know, listen to a lot of other songs and whatnot? Or has did this start just kind of coming naturally to you? Um, I would say um, I haven't read extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the chronic fatigue, there was an inability to digest great reams of text. Mm. And still, that's problematic. And still, writing lots is problematic as well. And so, I did start collecting books of a mainly kind of traditional orientation, I guess. But it's probably a passage that I would read yeah. over a cup of tea. Or um, I just feel. It, it starts to bubble up. The language of the heart is its own authority. And mm. so it starts to spill over and find its own expression. Um, that's the beauty of it. You don't need to have read extensively, although there can be many um, gems of wisdom in terms of the process of integration that can be gleaned from, from reading um, mm aspects certain aspects of text but um i would say because i've i've been inspired to do my own writing um a book has been formulating for a couple of years i didn't want to contaminate the expression with with other influences Mm -hmm. you know i wanted it to be something that was spoken in ordinary language and not and my own language, my own words, in a way that feels right here, um, that can reach a lot of people in a way, because I guess I think I'm just trying to find the right way to put it. It's like the the subculture can actually be quite limiting. The, explain the that. spirit, the spiritual subculture. Mm, you know, yeah. this this type of text only appeals to a small number of. I would never have gone to Advaita, for example. Mm-hmm. I would never have picked up the Bhagavad Gita or you know Ramana's teachings at that point. Right. And so, it's finding a way to make what this fundamentally is about accessible to a wider audience. And I yeah. think is so key. How are you doing that? What sort of things are you saying in this book? Well, um, the the structure is there. There's not many words on the pages yet, but it's kind of it's going to be an exploration from looking at life from how it's commonly experienced. So through the eyes of suffering, through the eyes of separation, and asking the deeper questions, mm-hmm. and then looking at awakening and what awakening is, and hopefully giving some clear pointers to that. And then looking at all the subsequent traps that can arise prior to and post awakening. Mm. And then look at basically the journey of integration and how that shifts and evolves and what to look out for and make it a live text uh-huh. so that it's not just me sharing 
a viewpoint. It's actually something someone can take on board themselves and inquire by asking directly and investigating directly because otherwise it's like reading books on cookery. You can learn it parrot fashion but unless you actually experientially taste what this is talking about it all the words in the world are useless mm. so I, I i very strongly agree i i really think that um you know experience knowledge or, or information you can get from a book is just really the icing on the cake the main cake is experience and uh, yeah you know however that is attained or or discovered then that's really what needs to happen yeah so it's going to be kind of an overview of conscious living i guess what Let's, that means i wish i had been able to write fast enough i wasn't writing at all but to take notes on the points that you just said in that book but i'm sure you've got them in your mind and i wouldn't mind spending the next half hour or so um exploring that point by point and maybe I could ask you some questions that will even help to stimulate your writing of the book or something. <laughs> um, so let's go through that again from the from the A to Z with you, as you outlined it. Well, the first aspect really is for where they are. I'm sorry, I, there was a glitch in the audio there. The first aspect yeah. was... Meeting people where they are. Meeting people where they are. Looking at the world through their eyes. Uh-huh. And I remember seeing the world that way. You know, it, it, it's... I can recall it. I can recall what that felt like, what the experience of that was. And I think it's very important to never lose sight of that. Even though it's dropped away, it can be recalled because sure. it was part of the experiencing for so long. And so meeting someone where they are almost provides this platform of understanding, of mutual respect, of commonality. Um, that is essential for anything deeper to be heard because otherwise it just closes the communication down right from the offset. I think that's a great place to start and I, and I think it's something that not all exponents or teachers do. Um, very often they just speak from their level of experience and expect people to relate to it and you know what you're saying is you got to step one should be to tune into yeah. people where they are otherwise there's what's the point in trying to communicate you know <laughs> and there is no other ultimately you no know other, it's like, no other person you mean right there right. is there is only life and so meeting life as it is as appropriate to the moment mm -hmm. is to be an experiential true alignment with what is mm -hmm. um and so it's almost can seem totally contradictory to the message of freedom to actually meet someone in their suffering but it's almost like the the foundation for really having access to to a powerful message yeah no i i totally agree i mean um the one way of phrasing it would be to teach according to the level of consciousness of the listener or yeah. the level level of experience of of the listener and uh yeah. You know, and that that's that applies to anything. You know, I mean, it applies to teaching. Um, you know, grade school or something. You know, you don't teach kids trigonometry uh, in <laughs> in the second grade or something. You teach them um, arithmetic or whatever is appropriate for them. And and then as time goes on, they they get to trigonometry. And that is not it's that's not to sound um, demeaning or you know. Um, 
condescending or or anything like that. It's just uh, it's just a it's it's for it's a practical way of approaching it. Right, and it's meeting life without an agenda. Mm -hmm. And seeing what opens up, and we never know. Yeah, the image of water f comes to mind. Water flows naturally in the direction of the slope, even though it may seem to be a uh, a sort of a of devious route, you know, going this way and that. But it's actually going by the most direct route under given the terrain that it's flowing through. Totally, I love that. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so in writing the book, how would you how would you meet people where they are uh, in when you first start presenting in the material? How how do you practically do that? Well, it's so different. Each and every encounter is so different. But if you're writing a book, you're speaking to a more general audience. Oh, so I see what you mean. How, how, how do you know who's going to read the book, and how can you possibly, you know, um, Well, I guess I, I don't. You. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, all I can go with is, is my memory of how life was lived prior to what was seen. Mm -hmm. And so right from that place of you know, wanting um, peace and happiness, which is a fundamental desire, deep desire that everyone has, um, if we really look for it. And looking at all the obscurations to that, the apparent obscurations, mm -hmm. and investigating that and asking the deeper questions as a platform. You know, because a, a lot of the time people are asking these questions anyway and they just don't know how to, you know, get out of that modality you know it's always in things trying to find happiness in things or in circumstance that's mm. the conditioned aspect of self um, so it's really putting the spotlight on that in a way that can perhaps open up a deeper investigation yeah and I don't suppose you would tell them that there's anything wrong with that it's natural you know, people people naturally do what they do, um, yeah. but perhaps perhaps that tendency to try to find happiness in things is symptomatic of a deeper quest. You know, definitely. And uh, there's nothing wrong with it, but it makes a huge experiential difference to life, to the experience of life, whether we're identified or not. Ultimately, it doesn't matter, right. but experientially, it seems to matter hugely, mm. and it's the key to unlocking the peace that's always available. Huh. So, what is the key again, exactly? <laughs> I forgot what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we were talking about how, you know, typically people try to find their satisfaction in things. And, you know, relationships and possessions and whatnot, and how that's, you know, if you're going to meet people where they are, then you have to kind of acknowledge that, um, and how perhaps it's not unnatural for people to do that. It's what everyone's doing, billions of people. But then, you know, perhaps that very tendency to seek happiness in things can can be seen as a, a symptom of or, or can be actually used in the service of finding happiness in something which actually is capable of providing it. I think that's what you're getting at. Right. 
gone, whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and then I was asking you, well, how are you going to, um, how are you going to accommodate the different, uh, you know, all the different perspectives there of, of the people who may be reading your book? Because if you want to meet them where they are, how you, how can you do that, not knowing where they are? Okay, or, okay. I yeah. think one aspect that I considered doing is mm -hmm. using an autobiographical component to illustrate mm -hmm. my life experience for them to then investigate their own life experience mm -hmm. and then I can also use that autobiographical component in the later chapters to see how so it can be used as an example of how I created certain perceptions certain realities for myself based on that conditioning and those, those perceptions operating mm. so through using my own example, it hopefully will inspire someone to ruthlessly investigate their own experience and see how certain things are being um, perceived as a result of, of conditioned tendencies. You can call it autobiog autobiography of a yogini. <laughs> I think that's been done already. <laughs> I think Yogananda might be on to me for copyright. Yeah, but he just used the masculine. You can use the feminine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting to see how it all yeah. takes shape. Well, I think that's a good way to start. And, and um, I think that it's been my observation that teachers who have sort of really gone through it as a person you know before their realization rather than just sort of waking up to it one morning without having really experienced some of not life's you know bumps and, and knocks um, end up being more effective in a way because they can really relate to people where they are if they remember to do that and right and yeah. I think that this is key actually yeah so what was the next phase of the book uh, that you outlined um, we're really looking at what awakening is, so moving on from the deeper questions and actually, mm -hmm. you know, exploring, um, well, what's this life about? And and really giving some key pointers that make experientially obvious what always is the case, that okay. which never changes uh, amidst all change. We know so, we've always been ourselves. We know we exist. So is that, um, so then what looking at what awakening is what what is awakening well i would describe awakening as an experiential recognition a personal experiential recognition mm -hmm. of timeless impersonal consciousness mm. so it's such a paradox because it happens to a person in the absence of a person in, and it happens in time. You might say, well, it happened last yeah. Thursday or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a paradox, yeah. Yeah. Um, and perhaps uh, elaborate a bit on that timeless, that recognition of the timeless um, as, it, as it dawned in your experience. Wow. How did you know it was timeless, for instance? And how did you know it was, you know impersonal or, or you know empty or whatever else oh, it was gosh that's such a hard question it's mm -hmm. like almost an impossible question to answer it was just what is clear and obvious was known to be myself mm -hmm. and it was it was like breaking of the shell of the person as the identity mm. 
but not being in denial of the way experience is seemingly happening and which this expression is is part of that is part of the totality of seamless experience um so not being in denial means you you didn't sort of say to you so i mean you would still say i am karen and i live here and i have this yeah. health, health, health problem and i have that job and this is my cat and you know so so in other words you still spoke and thought and right. in, ter- in terms of the personal but there was this whole new element that had seen in context mm. context of a larger reality of, of the expanse of life mm-hmm. um yeah just it was like in a timeless moment, I was seen that I was nothing, and I was seen that I was everything, which included this small aspect of the totality of experiencing. Mm. Instead yeah. of just being identified with this, right. there was this breaking of that to nothing, to everything, all in one seamless, timeless moment. That's beautifully put. Um, and did you lose it again after a while? I mean, did you wake up a week later and think, oh, God, I'm just this little Karen person now. I, I, what, what happened to that wonderful thing I had? It was never lost. Mm-hmm. But what I would say was there were certain identities that were running more strongly than others at certain times. It was very intermittent. Um, because there was still a lot of physical, um, you know, constraints in terms of the health and all of that kind of thing. Um, and also the practicalities of dealing with um, the life, life as it appeared to be as a result of all the identified thoughts, the actions and the consequences. And allowing those to play out in their own time. You know, I often use the analogy of throwing a stone in in a pond. And when we try and smooth the ripples, we're creating more more ripples, right? So it was just allowing everything Mm. to dissipate Mm -hmm. at its own pace and rate and just forever returning to recognition. So when you say practicalities, do you mean like, you know, your finances? Yeah. All that kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff you you have to deal with. Thing that seems important in the experience that we find ourselves in at this moment, you know. Um, We use money. We we need a roof over our head. We need food in the fridge. We need Mm -hmm. those practical things. We don't need a lot if we think about it. But those basic things are required. So... Um, taking care of those aspects, really. Yeah, like they say, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. <laughs> What's enlightenment? <laughs> yeah, right, that, but <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Just teasing. Yeah, the, the E word. Um, okay, so intermittent. Because, so I guess what you're saying is that as life's challenges bombarded you, as they always will, uh, the you know the awakening was sort of challenged, or it was um, perhaps at times somewhat overshadowed, somewhat less other times. Is that what you was? It, was there sort of a, a fluctuation in the clarity of it, or the certainty of it, and and so on, as as various things came at you? 
never in the certainty, mm -hmm. but in terms of how reaction may arise. From so in other words, you'd re react more habitually or you'd react in a more conditioned way and other times not. Right. Mm. Right. Okay. Until gotcha. that started to fall away. The trust was always there that life mm -hmm. is this. Um, and that never diminished. Mm -hmm. But the aspects of, you know, certain experiences arising, re-inviting identification with yeah. the personal in varying degrees of intensity. Mm -hmm came like waves with certain experiences that followed. So so you're saying that even in the most intense of those experiences, though, there was a, a, a certainty or a, a something that never, sh yes. was, that wasn't shaken. Yeah, I mean, I've experienced um, the most depths of despair after the awakening experience, which mm. has been cradled in utter peace. That's interesting. Yeah, because some people would say, how could you experience despair? You know, isn't it supposed to be bliss? I mean, where, where is there that any is room for... That is bliss. That is the bliss. Knowing that it's okay. Uh-huh. All inclusive. Uh, yeah. So even in the midst of the deepest, darkest, you know, times that you've had since then, there's been an undercurrent or a, a foundation of peace and certainty and yes yeah certainty is, and uncertainty oh that's good total too. certainty and uncertainty mm -hmm. which i imagine is the case right this moment right <laughs> i mean there's this sort of certain because certainty the word certainty actually has a, a fundamentalist connotation to it you know i am certain that jesus <laughs> is lord or i am certain that you know uh Mo, you know muhammad is is there's one god and his allah or whatever there's all kinds of people in this world who are absolutely certain about their convictions uh but i you know my understanding of a genuine awakening is that it is uh without the taint of fundamentalism to any degree and is actually a sort of a resting in not knowing is one way of explaining yeah. it. Yes. I mean, there's a, it's, it's paradoxical again because there's a certainty and a complete uncertainty right. si simultaneously. Right. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> it's good, to, good for people to hear this stuff, you know. I, and, you know, sometimes I have this attitude that, well, what's the point in just talking about it all the time? Because it's just, you know, you... you um, you know, people might try to live it on the basis of merely an understanding, but I think the value in hearing things like this is that, just as when you listen to John Wheeler, I suspect, it enables people to sort of identify elements that they're already living that they hadn't quite noticed, you know? And they think, oh, it's okay to have this uncertainty. That doesn't mean that I'm a confused, messed up person. Right. Yeah. I feel this is really beneficial, actually. Mm -hmm. Because the misunderstanding of that pulls people back into identification. Yeah. The allowing of it is instantaneously freeing. Mm-hmm. It's very good. <clears throat> um, okay, so we've covered meeting people where they are, and then we've covered a little bit of a, a look at um, how awaken what awakening is by your understanding and experience. Um, and uh, what was next? Um, 
I guess looking at the traps potentially that can arise. Pre, pre and post or both? Pre and post, I guess, but I'm still exploring all of those things and uh -huh. uh, finding a way to articulate what's happening. Um, Let's talk about a few of them that you've come up with so far. Oh, what have I come up with so far? Well, living realization from a memory, that's a, that's a big one. So in other words, uh, well, you, rather than me try to explain that, what, what do you mean by that? Well, just um, having an experience of awakening and mm. then living from the perspective of identification again. Mm. So there's not only living from identification, but there's also living with the identification of an awakened person. Because, of course, there are no awakened people, uh -huh. ultimately. <laughs> so, in other words, the person uh, might sort of have a an awakening that they lose and that the, and then they sort of like hang their hat on the on having had that awakening is that what you're saying well i don't see awakening as gaining or losing anything it's like it opens up it's an experiential recognition of the timeless and so that can be memorized that experiential recognition of the timeless can be memorized and then taken to mean all sorts of things in a personal sense and then life is being lived largely from identification or wholly mm. from identification again with the idea that this awakening experience has transformed something in a way mm. when really the behaviors and attitudes are still very much coming from a reactive place okay so why would that happen to a person? Because thought is very, very manipulative. Thought identification is very, very manipulative and subtle. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really being open to all these subtleties and being totally ruthless about what's being experienced in this moment. So are you saying that that happened to you um, quite a bit and that you learned how to... Um relax out of it? I would say there was elements of that, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and through difficulties that continued to arise from the momentum of past conditioning, this was the opportunity to actually see through that and break away from that and allow this to fall away by itself mm. um, and just be totally committed to recognizing in each and every moment and I don't mean getting into a regimented practice about somebody needs to recognize what is all the time because that can be another trap of identity. It can be very manipulative to do that. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But just simply to apply what I would call relaxed vigilance. It's hmm. a nice phrase. Yeah. Um, this whole thing about gaining and losing you know, I mean, I do know people who thought, who say, "Oh, I had this marvelous awakening in 1985, and I was just in a state of bliss for two weeks, and I, th I thought that was it, you know, and then I lost it again, and I, and I, I so longed to get back to that. That does happen to people. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't happen here, um, but you know, all sorts of other subtle things were playing out here. So you know. Different people are different in terms of what's experienced. 
And so it's making sure that all the bases are covered. And I think another trap can be it always happens the way it happened here. <laughs> ah, that's another good one, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that, in fact, that's one of the reasons I like to sort of, you know, have people kind of tell their stories and, and now I've done your number 89 or something in this series and and if a person actually listens to a number of them it's different for everybody mm. you know so it doesn't have to be like Karen or like so and so or whatever right right <laughs> so it's being open to seeing that in context as well you know I look at awakening in three main ways I guess mm. awakening experiences um, and that is that we can have a radical, sudden awakening, like mm -hmm. what happened here, and I think it's been documented well, I think, for a number of other people, many other people experienced awakening to the timelessness in a sudden time-bound moment of recognition that seems to fundamentally change how experience is experienced mm -hmm. without changing anything. And then those that seem to go through night turning into day so it's almost like an invisible transition and yet if they look back there can be a time recalled when it wasn't what is wasn't clear and obvious and then there can be a momentary glimpse into the timeless and then all of a sudden everything seems to close down again and it's lived from identification life is being lived from identification and I think these three main aspects fundamentally color how the subsequent integration and where people can get caught as well um, in very various ways with with those experiences really color how life is then integrated as itself mm. It's interesting, yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to, you know, for somebody to do some kind of a scientific study, really, where they carefully categorized all the sort of, you know, surveyed a thousand people or something and, and broke it down into categories. I bet you you'd find that a certain percentage had this sudden irrevocable awakening, and and then a certain percentage are were oozers, as they say, you know, where it just sort of oozed in so gradually <laughs> they didn't <laughs> didn't notice, couldn't put their finger on it. Uh, that, that'd be a fascinating thing for someone to undertake. Mm. Yeah. And I, I still think, you know, in the vast majority who awaken in a radical sense, there is still an integration process. Yeah. In fact, so I can't, I, I can't think of anyone for whom there isn't, even including some who don't acknowledge that there is, but there probably is. <laughs> yeah, I think even, even Ramana Maharshi went through a period of integration. Oh, yeah. I mean, he went through 20 years after his awakening where he didn't come out and say anything or do mm. anything. And, you know, he just sat and meditated. and um, Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Um, in fact, in certain Zen traditions, it's kind of formalized that after one awakens, they don't go out and teach. You know, they're expected to spend 10 years kind of integrating it before they go out and start teaching people. Yeah, and I think there's a tremendous amount of value to that. Yeah. Um, Certainly. Yeah, so, okay, in terms of traps now, we've covered, um, what have we covered? We've covered, can you reiterate? Living, living from a memory. Oh, uh -huh, okay. 
thinking it's always my way in terms of the experiential recognition. Um, mm. What else did we say? Or, <laughs> that, ha- or, or, that, it, or that it has to be so-and-so's way. You know, well, that's not, right. It's not, hap- not happening oh, to right, me. The, right. yeah, yeah, the, way, the way he describes it isn't happening to me, so I must not be there, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So those are a couple of good ones. Um, I think also maybe you talked about getting kind of ensnared by uh, conditioned tendencies again, mm-hmm. uh, something like that. Um, any others that come to mind? Not right now, actually. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm helping you. There right, are a lot. I've got a lot written down, but I can't think of anything right now. Yeah. No, this is good. This is good. Then, so then what's the, what's the next major section? Um, well, I would say looking at how we can become um, more conscious as a society um, mm-hmm. and looking at other ways in which the integration process happens. Um, I, I just really feel that it's so important to look in each and every moment at how we're relating to one another and often relationships provide an ideal basis for which we can explore that so we're all in the process of becoming more awake to what is already awake together mm-hmm. because everybody is ourself effectively and so it's it's a journey of connectedness um, and the human dynamic is so complex so it would be looking at ways in which to provide people, I guess, with a self-reflection tool to illuminate these conditioned tendencies so that they can be clearly seen in the light of presence. And there is no need to manipulate behavior or experience in any way to just allow everything to be as it is, but to really see what is happening. Hmm. Um, because often with these glasses are on, it's like an invisibility um, cloak, I guess. There is just this happening, and it's seen through the tendency. So it seems normal, not recognized. And so providing something which illumines what's really going on can be extremely beneficial. In the so ongoing process. what would you provide? Well, I'm looking into those, those sorts of things. Um, uh-huh. I think certainly psychotherapy can play a role okay. um, in looking at conditioned aspects of the idea of self. Mm-hmm. And often a lot of these things are unnoticed because they're so familiar. And so obviously psychotherapy not that I know a great deal about it but that would look at trying to change behaviors to become this very balanced human being Mm -hmm. I think this isn't about using tools in that way this is about perhaps using some sort of framework to illuminate what is not so it can be clearly seen and allowed Mm -hmm. to be as it is and then it will be recognized in experience how certain behaviors are actually feeding these dynamics, these unconscious dynamics. So I get the sense from what you were saying that as someone who runs around teaching satsangs to a certain extent and maybe sometimes over just Skype, sometimes in person, um, you, you feel a, 
a kind of a need to find something or th some things that can be effective in helping people realize this. You mentioned psychotherapy as a possibility. Do you feel that like, you know, there there need to be tools or to help people kind of recognize what you're trying to convey to them? Ultimately, no. Right. <laughs> There's always but that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it can be experientially very helpful um, to look at how this is lived from a truly awakened perspective. And how can a person do that if they don't have a truly awakened perspective? And right. Right. It's a catch-22. Right. So it's, it's looking at all the ways that experiencing can be obscured by what is not, effectively. Huh. So looking at all the ways the conditioned tendencies can be operating that aren't even seen until they're no longer there. So... And the only way they get seen is by truly seeing them. And sometimes something needs to be used in order for, to bring that into focus. It's like we don't even notice we're breathing right. until the focus is on the breath. Mm -hmm. So this is similar in a way as I see it. I've noticed um, through what's been experienced here that certain aspects of these tendencies can be fully operational in the light of presence. There can be total presence, there can be total clarity, and yet there can be a responding to life from something that isn't even noticed. Huh. Let's try to clarify that just a little bit. Oh, this is such a tricky thing to try and discuss. But yeah, it's abstract, but I think you can get it a little bit more concrete. Okay, so say um, you're totally, totally present and aware right now, mm -hmm. and then something happens, and there is a responding to what is happening, but the response is actually coming from a learnt behavior rather than from an inspired heart place. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like, these, t these tendencies get seen more and more and allowed to be as they are more and more until they fall away or they dissipate by themselves. Hmm. And so it could almost be said that if we're in denial that they're there, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, that we don't, we're not even open to noticing them. Huh. So you're saying <coughs> that the, the tendency... I'm letting some animals in and out here. I you're, can see. <laughs> <laughs> you're saying that the ten. Oh wait a minute, we got We have to introduce officially. <laughs> Leela. Oh, oh, she's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Mila, we'll, did you say? Leela, like play. Oh, Leela. Yeah. We won't edit this out. This is for the benefit of uh. all the Buddha at the gas pump fans. This is the official mascot. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. So. You're saying that, very informal. Yeah, your house is like Noah's Ark. You've opened that door about ten times. I know. It's, that's what it, I tried other approaches, but that none of them worked. So we, I just opened the door. Otherwise, they scratch or they make a... 
<laughs> I was wondering about leaving my cats the run of the house, actually, while this interview was taking place, but because uh-huh. uh, they mew behind the door and that kind of thing, but uh, they haven't put in an appearance yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so what I I think I understand you to be saying that learning to kind of bring your attention to to recognize that you're operating from a conditioned pattern rather than sort of a genuine a genuine kind of intuitive spontaneous thing from the heart and it enables those conditioned patterns to dissipate right because they can be clearly seen and so a lot of what can be driving our action can be from these unseen tendencies of conditioning and so in being open to them it's like experiencing of life itself becomes purer and purer it's already pure but these tendencies are falling away enabling everything to be seen and experienced with an increasing brightness yeah. with an increasing joy and if even if actually we're not open to seeing unseen aspects of ourselves. Life often is orchestrating the perfect opportunities for for them not to be ignored any longer. Very good point. Yeah. You know, so this, it doesn't really matter. Right. This this thing of uh it's uh, it's already I forget how you phrase it, already pure, already you know, already there. Um you know, the analogy comes to mind, let's see if you think this fits, of let's say uh you know a radio signal from a radio station. It's already a perfectly fine signal, you know, it's potentially crystal clear. But if your radio is not tuned in very well or it's not pointing in the right direction or something, then you're gonna get a staticky kind of version of it. It's not it's not and it's not to say that the signal itself needs to be improved, although, you know, you could stretch the analogy and, and say maybe you're too far away and the signal's weak. But let's say you have a, a perfectly adequate signal. But in this case the radio it needs some adjustment you know it needs to be you need to turn the dial a little bit or move the direction or improve the antenna or something to to pick up this signal which is already perfectly fine the way it is um so this whole thing of you know being or or pure awareness or silence or peace or whatever is just you know it can't be improved upon is is all well and good but there's as as little as human radios there's so much room for becoming better attuned right and experiencing is constantly shifting and evolving so Mm -hmm. to say nothing can be improved is kind of a fixed perspective Mm. yeah Mm. i mean you can't improve on what is because what is is what is but in terms of an experiential human journey there's always a deeper and deeper opportunity to to rest into that to be that to, to actually have that uh, maybe a practical living reality as opposed to a nice notion <laughs> that everything is, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And often we can be deluding ourselves in the subtlest of ways mm-hmm. that sometimes can be, um, you know, disguised as clarity even. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting in a way because, you know, people whom I've met who would be considered to be famous saints, you know, very widely known around the world and, uh, you know, who have a tremendous presence and, you know, profound influence on lots of people. Even there, when you get to know them well, um, you know, you see that 
a lot of their stuff appears to be very much culturally conditioned, you know, certain ways they behave and certain things they believe and so on. And so you wonder if one ever um, is free of a certain amount of personal and cult cultural baggage, uh, and maybe it's not necessary to be. Um, and, and very often people sort of identify those cultural conditionings as characteristic of enlightenment. You know, they think, oh, yeah. he, he believes this, therefore that's the enlightened way to believe, and I should believe that too. Or he speaks with a certain intonation in his voice, and so I would speak that way too. <laughs> and uh, there's something spiritual about that. Um, so, I don't know, it's funny, it's just an observation, maybe you have a, a comment on it. Well, even language is conditioned, right? Mm -hmm. We wouldn't even be, it's learned, we wouldn't be able to speak to one another. And we haven't moved into the realm of telepathy yet. So, <laughs> and even if we had, that would be conceptual in a way. We'd have to convey right. concepts. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah, I don't. There's always elements of learned behavior, but I guess it's looking at what the behavior is, and is it ultimately self-defeating or not? Mm. Is it ultimately um, kind of reinforcing? A belief in a separate self or not yeah and so if it's seen in context like these words are seen in context then nothing's a problem ultimately hmm. it's whether we're feeding something we're not seeing or not it almost seems like the the key element is what's predominant <laughs> cat going out <laughs> and wife going out with cat food um it seems like you know what's running the show you know yeah and and that's the key question it, which which thing has the upper hand right right i'm being really ruthlessly honest in any moment about that mm. and like what you said a minute ago was i thought was interesting is that you know, conditioning can actually be pulling the strings a lot more than we realize, even mm. when we think it's not. And and so, how would we, how would we kind of um, be, become aware of that so as to root it out or, or release one more level of of conditioning? Well, I don't want to get into the game of thinking that there's a personality to be f purified, mm -hmm. but in terms of a sa using something that reflects what's hidden. Mm -hmm. So looking at aspects of conditioned personality would be one way and not actually taking it on board as trying to change the personality to be something better but just simply recognize why certain patterns keep occurring for example because often we can be in a holding path of experiencing it's like the same things come round and round again, time and time again. Why is that? Because of how we're feeding it invisibly. Mm. And so it isn't about trying to perfect our sense of self. It's like holding up what is not to the light so it can be clearly seen, allowed to be as it is, and not fed anymore. Hmm. By fed, you would mean reinforced, sort of, uh, yeah. By behaviors, attitudes, subtle beliefs. Yeah. Operating. Well, I know it's sort of um, unfashionable to speak in terms of improving the personality, and I can see how that can be a, a 
if if that's one's sole focus, it can be a never-ending project, you know, which uh, can ultimately be very frustrating because that is not adequate in and of itself. But that is not to say that by at least one way of defining it, the personality does not become improved. I mean, wouldn't you say that over the years, as you've been releasing conditioned tendencies and habitual ways of, of reacting and responding to things, that that could be construed as an improvement, an improved style of functioning in your life. I guess that's one perspective, mm -hmm. but I don't see it in that way. It's like melting more and more into being. Yeah. Melting more and more into that which is already awake, but not being in denial of our humanness. Right. But that melting more and more into that which is already awake is desirable. You know, you're, it's, you appreciate the fact that that is taking place. You wouldn't voluntarily go back to where you were five years ago. No, but is it, is it, is it really desirable um, or is it just simply what is happening? Both. I would say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, there is, as we started out, go ahead. Right. There isn't a desire to make it happen. Right. But it's happening. Right. And yeah. there's a if there is a desire, it's a desire for what is, and it's a desire to experience what is now clearly and not do anything to manipulate that. Right. Oh, agreed. And by the, by using the word desire, I'm not trying to say that oh, I have to have this happen and I'm not going to be happy until it happens and, and all that stuff. Um, I'm just saying that it's, it's, um, it's a nice thing. I mean, it's, it, that's what I meant by the word desirable. It's, it's, there seems to be an evolutionary process taking place and, and an, a, a clarification, an enrichment, a deepening, a, a letting go of conditioned tendencies which tend to obscure the the more intuitive natural flow of life the kind of things you've been saying that that's that's mm -hmm. kind of what i'm getting at yeah and i think it's important to clarify that because there is this sort of stigma um uh, in spiritual circles about you know the the words self improvement and so on and and rightfully so because a lot of times that has been presented as the whole package you know be a be a better person learn how to get diamond necklaces if you desire them and you know it's all it's all about sort of um rearranging the the furniture rather than yeah yeah and so this is really about just resting yes and not trying to manipulate anything which by the very nature of that truly seeing what is happening it releases itself mhm mm beautiful there, there's a verse in the Gita, I won't quote the whole verse, but one key phrase of it is, what can restraint accomplish? Oh. <laughs> well, actually, a little bit more of the verse is, creatures act according to their own nature. What can restraint accomplish? Right. Yeah. Um, good. So, uh, okay, so we've covered, is, is that it, the book? <laughs> 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 if it ever gets written. Yeah, I'm helping <laughs> <We'll see>. you here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do feel that, you know, that's going to probably cover a broad spectrum of things. Mm -hmm. I think that'll be a good book. Suffering to the full integration, following yeah. the experiential recognition, mm -hmm. and make it a live journey. So 
but um, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I think if you wait until full integration has happened with a capital F-I, oh. you'll never finish the book. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it, uh, integration is an evolutionary process, should we say, a continuing right. evolutionary process. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> um, okay. So what's going on with you these days? I mean, you um, are you giving satsangs are you, you besides writing the book are you traveling are you do you talk to people uh, on Skype uh, in yes, one on one kind of satsangs definitely i um you know respond to emails to requests for mm -hmm. connections on Skype um that seems to be the majority of what is happening right now um there's a meeting here in the UK in Leicester next month um, the middle of the month sometime with um, nondualitymeetup.com, I think it is, um, through Nick Hyam, who's the organizer. He's organized a, a meeting on the weekend. So there's that. There's a meeting in Ireland towards the end of October. Uh, I've been invited there. So I will go anywhere within reason. If the costs can be covered, I will happily go anywhere. Hmm. So... Do you yeah. manage to support yourself with this? I mean, do people pay a, a little fee if they have a consult with you or go out, you do retreats and they pay a course fee or something? I've not done a retreat as yet. I'm mm -hmm. open to doing, to doing that. Mm -hmm. um, I've been sustaining myself from my own financial means largely because I worked hard. So you have um, some savings or something. Right. Right, so that's where the majority of the support comes from. But, you know, people, if they see the value, and majority of people do see the value in what is shared, then they donate accordingly. And, and some people can't afford to donate, and, of course, that's fine too. Yeah. So it's available for whoever wants to inquire. Um, and that's it, basically. That's great. No, I appreciate that. I, I sort of operate the same way. I mean, I don't teach satsangs or anything, but just this whole interview show uh, is available to whoever wants to listen to it. But there's a donation button, which I might as well mention, and people occasionally click that and, and send something in, and it's enabled me to buy equipment. And I'm actually going to attend the Science and Non-Duality Conference in, uh, in, the fall, in October in California by virtue of that, that support. So I very oh, mu much appreciate that as well. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I, I really appreciate this. It's, it's really enjoyable to talk to you. Is there anything, um, you're probably going to say no, but is there anything you feel like we haven't touched upon that you'd like to mention? No, not really. I just respond to whatever questions come up. So mm -hmm. there's not really a great deal here unless a question gets asked. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I've really enjoyed speaking with you and it's I want to thank you from my heart for this opportunity to share. Um it's really wonderful and um yeah, it's just been a really beautiful way to spend a Sunday afternoon. So thank you. Thank <laughs> oh, you. Oh, thank you. It's mutual and uh, you respond very nicely to questions by the way. I really feel like there's a a very refreshing depth and clarity to your understanding and uh, and it's very obviously experientially based, you know, which is a point that you have emphasized 
during this conversation that you're not just sort of speaking from having read a lot of books or anything you're you're speaking from the heart and that that's great what else is there <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh it'll be fascinating to see how things continue to unfold for you you know maybe in a year or two we can have another one of these and uh Maybe the book will be finished. In fact, when it is, send, it, send me a copy. I'll read it, and we'll have another conversation. Sure, it would be an absolute delight. Um, yeah. yeah, and I'm just available for anybody who wants to get in touch. You know, if anybody feels they want to inquire, then I'm very open to, um, to sharing in that way. So. Good. And I'll link to your website from mine, so those listening, if they want to get in touch with Karen, go to batgap.com, and you'll see this interview posted there, and there'll be a link to her website. And there's obviously a way there to get in touch with you, right? Yes, there is. Yeah, there's um, a contact tab on the website and lots of free material as well. And uh, there'll also be another podcast on the website within the next couple of days that uh, Nick Himes produced. Great. So. Okay, thanks. Well, um, let me just make a couple of concluding points. So I've been speaking with Karen Richards. Um, from the UK. I'm in the US, she's in the UK. And uh, this is a c continuing series, these interviews, um, called Buddha at the Gas Pump, the implication being that these days, under very ordinary circumstances, you might meet very awakened people. Um, and if you go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, you'll see them all. You can sign up for an email newsletter there to be notified each time a new interview is posted. You can sign up for a podcast so you can listen on your iPod while you're doing other things. And uh, there's also a little discussion group that crops up around every interview. People start posting comments and others respond and sometimes the person I've interviewed comes in and, and responds to some of the comments. So I'll, I'll invite Karen to do that if there's anything that I think she might want to respond to. So thank you for listening or watching. And the next interview we should, should be with Sharon Landreth, who lives in Colorado. And so we'll see you then. Thanks for watching. <laughs>